Last week, last week, we, we introed Leviticus. How are you getting on reading through the daily reading with Leviticus, by the way? Who's found it weird? Weird? Hands up. Interesting? Life-giving. <laughs> it's just the word of God, guys. Come on. Uh, um, gory. It is pretty gory, hey? Yeah, really gory. Um, Last week we, do you remember last week I said there was this, you can, you can do a real brief overview of Leviticus in two parts. Part one, sorting it out. Part two, living it out. Do you remember that? So part one was all about the fact that they were outside of the presence of God. They, they'd just been caught in their sin. They, they'd come out of Egypt, but they were still worshipping around this golden calf, this Egyptian style of worship to idols. And, and on the day that God had called them his own, they'd really screwed it all up. And yet God, do you remember the first word of Leviticus? Vaikra. God continued to call. He, he still longed for them to come, right? That's how it started. And so the first bit, the first seven chapters of these five offerings, or in Hebrew, korban, which means to draw near. So the beginning of Leviticus was God calling out to them in their sin even though when he'd already rescued them they still screwed it up he said I still want you come near come near and so the whole beginning bit was how they put it right how do they restore relationship how do they know how to live in joy and gratitude again Uh, how do they know how to live free from sin and the effects of sin again and all of this is how Leviticus opened God sorting it out making a way for them to be in his presence and to know the life that he wants for them so part two then, which is what we're going to kind of look at today, and oh, I would love to take the whole year and just slowly work through Leviticus, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, but we don't have time to do that, okay, sadly, sadly. Um, so we've got this one week left to sum up the rest of it. So I'm not going to go like diving into one particular part in real detail, I'm going to try and skim through some of it, because I want you to to be equipped as you read through to receive the most you can from it, okay? So I wanna give you some little points and hints about things as we travel through, Uh, but we're gonna be looking at this second part. So we've seen how God longs for them to come near. Now it's the living it out. What does that look like now they're becoming the people of God? Um, And I said that today is, uh, is Palm Sunday. And, and which fits really well with what I want to talk about. Um, today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that, that uh, people, they waved palm branches before Jesus, celebrating and declaring that he was the king. Right, and he, they, they, they celebrated his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Here comes King Jesus. Here comes King Jesus. They'd seen the miracles. They'd heard the stories. They were recognizing who this guy was. He is the Messiah. He's the promised son of David in whom God was going to dwell and bring salvation to his people. And so they've got their palm branches out and they are waving them in front of him. Why are they doing that? Why? Because in Leviticus, yes, in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 40, it tells them to celebrate and to get out palm branches and wave them before the Lord. And you'll notice that in that verse, the Lord is, the, is in capital letters, which means the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. Wave them before Yahweh, the very name of God. Wave them before God. And so these guys are waving them before Jesus. Why? Because they recognize that this is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one in whom the presence of God dwells, who is coming, who is God himself come to rescue and save his people, to establish his kingdom. That's who they think he is. 
That's who they think he is. And so they're waving these branches in front of him, declaring, you're our king, you're our king. And a few days later, they're nailing him to a cross. They're nailing him to a cross. You ain't our king. And in fact, Pilate puts a little plaque above the cross of Jesus that reads in several different languages, the king of the Jews. And they are so offended. They are so offended. Take that down. Take that down, they're saying. He is not our king. He's not our king. How do they get from waving palm branches in front of him to then declaring he is not our king? Because he wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. What they wanted was a king that would come in, take down the Romans, and restore Israel to what they wanted it to be to how they remembered it, to what they longed for again. They wanted that. And they completely missed what Jesus had come to do. The enemy that he'd really come to conquer. The people he'd really come to save. The kingdom that he had come to establish and to set up. They missed it because they were too caught up on what they wanted and not who he was and what he had come to do. And I wonder, I challenge myself with this as well, okay? I wonder, do we do that? Do we come to church on Sunday and wave our palm branches in front of him? King Jesus. King Jesus. And once he's ridden past, we start to look at the kind of king that he is. The kind of life that he calls us to lead. The kind of things that the scriptures tell us about him and about what it means to follow him. And we quickly take up our palm branches again. And we say, not my king. Not for this part of my life. Not for this thing. Not for this way of living. No. I wonder if we do that. It's a challenge for you today. A challenge for me. I'm guilty of it, I think, at times. Laying down my life, my heart, my mind, my body, my marriage, my job. Laying it all down before him and saying, you're king over all of it. But then when it comes to realizing what that really means, taking it back up again. And actually being king myself. And that, that is what I want us to talk about today. That's what I want us to talk about today. Um, if you open your Bibles to Leviticus uh, chapter 8, we've done chapters 1 to 7, so we're going to kick off from chapter 8 and, and move forward from there. Um, they, they were led out of Egypt by God, right? He, he called them out of Egypt, and then he called them into his presence. Do you see that? He called them out of slavery, and then he called them his own people. He called them and they drew near to him. He came riding in and they were like, yes. But then here's the next thing. Once he had come in as their king and they had become his people, there's a question. And what does this look like? What does this look like for us to live as your people? And um, you start to notice a few things. I want to pull out a few phrases and things that you start to see. Okay, so you start to see stuff throughout Leviticus. Repeated patterns, repeated phrases. And, and in chapter... Um, eight, you'll start to notice one of them. They, they came out of Egypt, and then suddenly God's got all these new laws and rules for them, all these new ways to live, including how to dress up their priests, which is what we're seeing here in, in chapter 8 onwards. Um, and, and there's all these strange things. They wouldn't have done all of these things in Egypt. They would have done different things. This was a different culture. And God was calling them to do something new. And, and, and I imagine that for them, lots of it was weird. 
Moses is saying to the people, hey, the Lord has told me that this is what we are to do now. And they're like, right. <laughs> you feel like that? Now you've become a Christian. This must stop and this must start and you must live like this. And you're like, oh, right. <laughs> and I imagine for them it was a bit like that. Oh, all oh, right, we... There's, there's a certain way to live and some of this stuff is weird we're not used to this stuff this stuff is odd it is strange you want us to do what with the blood you want us to wear what you want us to treat people like this and do that and hang on a minute this is so bizarre so bizarre and yet and yet you start to notice this phrasing right even though for them probably some of it felt really odd and felt uncomfortable and felt do, I, do we really want to do this. You'll, you'll notice this phrase pops up again and again and again. Chapter 8, verse 4. Moses did as the Lord commanded. Moses did as the Lord commanded. Uh, verse 9, as the Lord commanded. Verse 13, as the Lord commanded. Verse 17, as the Lord commanded. Verse 21, as the Lord commanded. Um, verse 29, verse 31, verse 34, verse 35, 36. Chapter 9, Verse 6, then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Uh, verse 7, the people did as the Lord commanded. Verse 10, we could keep going, right? Uh, verse 16, in the prescribed way, you keep going all the way through and you start to notice this phrase coming up again and again and again. The people or Moses or the priests did as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded. Why? Because they'd just seen his awesome power, right? They'd just seen him set them free. They'd just seen what their God could do and who he really was. And so while this stuff was weird and strange and maybe didn't feel comfortable for them, they did as he commanded. We live in a society today where what I feel is king, right? What I feel is king. If I feel that, then I should be able to do it. If I feel that, then it is right. And I've said on a number of occasions, and you probably find this true for you as well, but in any given day, my feelings can go from here to here to here to... They change all the time. My feelings should not be king of my life. Because my feelings are not uh, trustworthy. They're not faithful. They're not secure. They change at the drop of a hat. What is secure and what is firm and what does not fail is the word of the Lord. Yeah, the word of the Lord. And so, are we doing as the Lord commanded? Are we? Whether it feels right to us or not. This is what Leviticus moves into next. This kind of challenge then. Are you going to be faithful to what God's calling you to? Are you going to do what the Lord commands? Is he going to be your king? This is where we're at. Okay, you all with me? Great. Um, so from there... Let's talk about a couple of other things and we'll circle back to that in a moment. From there, it gets really weird. <laughs> From there, you get into chapters uh, kind of 10 and 11 and so on. And, and you start to, uh, chapter 12, 13, you, you start to read stuff about people being unclean. Okay, and I've said this before, but I want to make this point again in case you don't remember or in case you haven't heard this before. That 
there is a difference between the things that are unclean and the things the Bible calls sin. Okay, Let, let's not confuse these two. We're going to talk about this for a moment. There are two different things going on here. Okay, unclean things. You'll notice that unclean things generally have stuff to do with blood, death, uh, raw flesh, semen, bodily discharges, all that kind of lovely stuff. All right, this stuff is all coming under the category of unclean. And you think, well, what's all this about? What's this about? You get all these chapters about things that are unclean. Um, let's pull some of this stuff out of here. Something that I love about this. Turn to chapter 12. Another pattern for you to look out for as you read through Leviticus, okay? Chapter 12, verse, uh, let's just read verses 1 and 2 a second. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, A woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days. Now, you get this pattern throughout Leviticus where there's uncleanness. And for all kinds of reasons, touching a dead body, giving birth, uh, all, all kinds of stuff like that. You get this thing where they're unclean for a period of seven days and, and, they, and they're set aside, if you like, for seven days. Talk about that in a moment. And then they wash and then they come back into the camp and back into life within the community. Okay. Now, now look at this. So we've seen there seven. Uh, if you look at verse 5, you'll see 14 days or two weeks. Okay, so two lots of seven. If you go to chapter 13 and look at the end of verse 4, depending upon which version you're reading, uh, mine's the NIV, so the end of verse 4, you'll see seven days. The end of verse 5, you'll see seven days. The end of verse 21, you'll see seven days. Verse 26, seven days. Verse 33, seven days. Oh, I missed out verse 31. Uh, verse 50, seven days. Keep, keep going. Uh, verse 54, seven days. Chapter 14, verse 7, seven days. Verse 8, seven days. Um, verse 16, seven times. Verse 27, seven times. Uh, verse 38, seven days into chapter 15. I won't keep going because you, you get the picture, right? Do you see the number seven coming up over and over and over again? Now, I love this. All right, you know, you know I love the whole numbers thing. All right, the number seven. What does the number seven instantly bring to mind when we start thinking about seven in the Bible? Creation, creation, right? Creation. What happened in creation? In creation, God took all these things that were messy and chaotic and were blurred together and, and muddy, if you like, and, and he spoke and he separated them over a period of seven days. And out of the dark and out of the chaos and out of the mess, he brought order and beauty and life. That's what creation is all about, right? That's what God did. And so here, through all the chapters about uncleanness, we keep getting this repeated pattern of seven days, seven days, seven days. For this uncleanness, seven days. For that uncleanness, seven days. What is God doing? God is taking the messiness of life and he is allowing space for beauty and order and peace and joy and life to be restored again. Do you see that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? See, um, in uh, chapter 21, if you want to go there, chapter 21, verse th 1 to 3. Let me read this to you. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die. So basically, don't, don't touch the dead body because that makes you unclean, okay? Um, except 
for a close relative, such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. Right. I wanted just to read that verse to you because I have heard people talk about this stuff before as if like, oh, all of this stuff is bad and God's got a problem with it and it's, it's a real issue. Yet there, the Lord says, the Lord says, hey, in situations like this, it's okay that they touch that and it's okay that they become unclean. And when they do, then they take this period of seven days and then they're restored to the community. Because what God is saying is this, guys, life is messy. Is there anything wrong with sex or childbirth or periods or, I mean, some of the women might say, yeah, we don't like them, but this natural cycle of life and the beauty of it, you know, people die and people are born and life is messy in both of those situations, isn't it? Sometimes childbirth isn't easy. Sometimes even afterwards with a young child coming in makes life messy. When someone dies, life gets messy. And do you know the beauty of this? You see, we've read this through a lens that says, well, God alienated them outside the camp. That is not what is going on here. You see what happens when someone is unclean. And I don't think that's necessarily a good word for us to understand the cultural context of the day. But when someone is made unclean by some of these things, Like when a woman has just given birth, God says, just give them some space. Like give them some peace. You've just lost a member of your family. Take some time away from people and mourn. Like just take some time. It's about honouring people. It's about recognising that life gets messy. And actually when that happens, God wants to speak order and beauty and life back into you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? So that is going on there. Uh, that is part of what's going on. If you turn to chapter 16, verse 16, you'll see this, right? Uh, it's talking about making atonement for the most holy place um, for the tabernacle. It says, making atonement because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them and in the midst of their uncleanness. Now, the tent of meeting, who dwelt in the tent of meeting? God, God, the presence of the Lord dwelt in the tent of meeting. Where is the tent of meeting according to Leviticus 16 verse 16? In the middle, in the midst of their uncleanness. God's not afraid of the mess of your life. And I think that for many of us, we often think that he is, but he isn't. He's not afraid of the mess of your life. In fact, God puts himself right at the middle. Do you remember Psalm 23, the one all about sitting down on green pastures and lovely waters. But then remember the next bit. You lay up a table for me, a feast for me in the midst of my enemies, in the mess of my life, in the middle of the struggle. That is where he is found. Wow. This is the God of Leviticus. This is the God of Leviticus. So I want just to point that stuff out to you. Um, because I think sometimes we get to the unclean things and we start to get weird about it, like, oh, this is odd. But I want you to see that God hasn't changed. It's not like he suddenly flipped out and got weird on people. He still is calling them to draw near, and he's wanting to deal with the things in their lives that are causing mess. Like, he is holy, and we can't come into his presence 
uh, in an unholy state, right? It's like the sun. I love this analogy. You know, if you get too close to the sun and you're not in something protective, you're going to burn up, right? This, this, this image of that. But yet the sun gives life, doesn't it? It's incredible. And so there's this whole thing about needing to be right before we come to God. But God's not angry about the mess of our lives. He wants us to know life and he recognizes that life gets messy and he puts himself in the midst of it. So that's the first thing. So that, that's those, those chapters there, 12, 13, 14, kind of 15, we get into those. Then we get on to the fun ones, chapters 18, 19, and 20. Um, and this is the stuff where it starts talking about sin, okay? Um, and there's, some, there's all kinds of stuff in here. And there's stuff in here that I think people really wrestle with and struggle with and the church is kind of really wrestling with within the, the state of our culture right now. But I just want to give a bit of an overview for some of these chapters as you read through. Okay, You'll notice there are all kinds of things. Um, for example, do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. That's a good one. Okay, Don't do that. It goes on. It says, do, do, do not have sexual relations with your sister. Don't do that. Or your father's daughter or your mother's daughter. We're all okay with these so far, right? I hope. Um, it goes on and, and it just goes down this big long list of don't do this. Don't be sexually intimate with these people. Don't get sexually intimate with these people. And you're like, these are good. This is, these are good laws. These are good rules. Um, all of these laws and rules in these chapters, 18, 19, and 20, I want to say to you, all of these laws and rules are about relational stuff and about how to honour relationships, okay? How do we honour relationships? How do we honour the people that God has made, the way that God has made them? How do we honour the image of God in other people? We get that. And then into chapter 19, we get, each of you must respect your mother and father. Yep, great, relational. Then we get verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourself. And you think, well, how's that relational? Well, it's about relationship with our God. It's about not having wrong relationships with other gods because he is our God. Do you see that? And you keep, you keep reading down and you get, do not steal in verse 11. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear. For, okay, these are how we honor one another again. Let's not mistreat each other. Let's have good relationships with each other. Uh, do not cause a uh, curse. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. That would be mean. Okay, don't do that. Honour one another. It's a relational thing. Uh, and you can keep reading through and you'll get that. And then you get to these weird ones. Fascinating. Verse 19. Okay. Do not mate different kinds of animals. Do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. And you think, well, what's that got to do with relational stuff? But it is. Culturally for us, it might seem a bit obscure, but it's still about relationship. It's about relationship with the world around us, relationship with the ground, with the land that the Lord has created, relationship with the things that happen. So, hey, you remember in, in Genesis, God made distinctions between things. He separated the waters above and below. He separated all kinds of different things. And so here God's saying, hey, like honor the things that I have made. Okay, don't, don't mix these things up. Honour the things. Keep good relationship with people. Keep good relationship with me. Keep good relationship with the world around you. And it doesn't make sense to us, these things, because culturally we're in a different place. But this is the heart of these chapters. It's the heart of these chapters. It gets on then to talk about, um, it gets on then to talk about uh, mediums and divination and all that kind of thing. Um, and, and again, that's about our relationship with God, how we honour him. 
and not other spirits, other Elohim, other idols or gods, that kind of stuff. You with me so far? Yeah? God loves relationship. God loves people. He loves his world. It is good, he said over it. And he's like, I want you to love it too. I want you to honor one another. This is how you live as my people, the way that I've made you to be. And then we get into chapter 20. And the law repeats some of the things, but it, um, it changes its language. So 18 and 19 says, hey, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. And then in chapter, nine, in chapter 20, it says, if this, then that. If this, then that. Okay, so you get these things where it says, let's find the fun one. Uh, verse 9. Anyone who curses their father or mother, if you curse your father or mother, then they are to be put to death. I wonder how so many children have survived. <laughs> and you think, what? What? Anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. It's a good job we've sent the kids out, isn't it? Um, and then it goes on, it talks about anyone who has sex with animals, put them to death. Anyone, and, all, and you think, hang on a minute, anyone who sacrifices their children to Moloch, this is this other god back then, okay, is to be put to death. And you think, okay, right, well, I, yeah, I get the sacrificing your children, I'm, I'm down with the whole death sentence for that, maybe, like it makes sense, we wouldn't do it, but we understand it. Sleeping with animals, uh, maybe, maybe not on the fence on that one they might need some help rather than death and 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 then we get to cursing cursing your parents and you think hang on th these things are not equal right these things do not add up how is it that the, the, the same punishment is for all of those things and um i uh i love this when you start to get into what is going on here why is god saying put them to death for these things do you remember in genesis chapter 3 do you remember when Adam and Eve were told not to take from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What did God say to them? If you take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And then chapter four, they're still alive. You're like, hang on a minute. What happened there? <laughs> God said they'd surely die. Was the serpent telling the truth? Was God lying? No. Where are they now in chapter four? They're outside of the presence of the Lord. They're not in Eden anymore. And you'll notice that with each of these um, kind of things where it says, hey, if someone does this, they are to die. You'll notice this phrase that comes up again and again and again throughout, throughout Leviticus, where God says, for I am the Lord, which we know in capital letters is his name, Yahweh, your God. For I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God. Do, do you guys remember when we talked about the name of the Lord? Oh, it must have been back in 2019 now. And we talked about the fact that there's four letters in it, okay? Yod, He, Vod, He. And uh, many scholars believe that the, the name of the Lord is actually probably unpronounceable. We put vowels in to make it sound like Yahweh, okay? But actually they think the name of the Lord in Hebrew is simply the sound of breath. Yod, You hear that? The sound of breath. The name of the Lord is life. It is breath of life. That's who he is. 
Don't do these things. If you do, you will surely die. For I am the breath of life, your God. Do you see what happened back in Genesis? Don't do this or you will surely die. They were cut off from the presence of God. They died spiritually. And human beings are both physical and spiritual. Now you can wander around physically, but you're like a zombie. You're the walking dead. You're not alive spiritually and your whole self is not alive if you're cut off from the presence of God. There's very little evidence historically to show that the Israelites back in the wilderness actually did execute people for this, these things. Actually, what we seem to think is that probably this is what they understood it to mean. That if someone does this, you're going to be cut off, probably put outside the camp call it excommunicated if you want to use an old churchy word, all right? But essentially, you are cut off from the presence and the people of God. You're going to die. You're not spiritually alive. What happens when sin enters the camp, when it enters our lives? Well, the result of sin is death. Why? Because we miss the mark of the presence of God. Hata, life. We miss the mark of the presence of God and we overshoot and we end up in the wide blackness of death rather than in the presence of life. Do you, do you see that? These things will surely lead you to death. Um, uh, another one for you. I'll just throw this one in. Uh, Numbers 35. This, this is uh, another uh, kind of theory around this stuff. Numbers 35 is talking about uh, people who murder. And it says there this. It says that um, a ransom can be paid uh, for any... Um, any punishment, any penalty, except in the case of murder, where a human being murders another human. And so what scholars believe this means is that in almost every circumstance where the penalty is death, a ransom can be play, paid instead. Isn't that amazing? Because you and I, we are deserving of death our, in our sin. And yet a ransom has been paid. A ransom has been paid. And doesn't that take us back to Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, where there was an offering that allowed us to come back into the presence of God? An offering, a ransom was paid for our sin so that we could come back into the presence of God. And so why then all the things? Why doesn't God just say, well, if you do this, do that? Why does he say they should die? Because he wants us to see the seriousness. You see, the penalty shows us just how detrimental to our lives it is. When we choose not to live God's way, we end up dying. When we choose not to come under him as king, and we reign as king, or let someone else or our feelings reign as king, we end up missing the mark and we end up dying. And so God says, this stuff is serious. It is serious. When you live this other way and you do these things and you don't follow my laws, you will end up dying. But you can find a way back to me, which is right back to Leviticus 1, 3 to 7 again. Um, why all of this? Why all of this? I wanted to point these things out to you because I think as you read through, I don't want you getting there and thinking like, what on earth is going on? And, and what am I reading? Like, this is not the God I know. I want you to see that through it all, his heart never changes. Okay, he's always the same God, always wanting life for his people. And this is what that is about. Why is all this there? All this is there because God vaikred. All this is there because God called them out of Egypt. And then when they sinned, he called them out of sin and in to his presence. He called them out of Egypt. Um, what are all these laws about? Well, all these laws are there and these rules are there because while he called them out of Egypt, Egypt needed to be called out of them. 
You see, they were out of Egypt and yet they were still worshipping the golden calf, this Egyptian method of worship. He set them free, but they still had Egypt in them. And so he gave them these new laws, these new rules. Let me just uh, prove this to you with a couple of verses. If you look at chapter 11, uh, verse 44, it says, uh, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. The word holy means be set apart. Okay, because I am holy. Do not make for yourselves, do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. I set you apart. I called you out of Egypt. So live in what I've called you out of. Live in this thing. Be set apart. I've called you out of Egypt. Go to chapter 17, verse 7. Uh, it says, <clears throat> they must no longer, the phrase no longer implies they used to, right? You must no longer do what you used to do. They must no longer offer any of their sacrifices to the goat idols to whom they prostitute themselves. You used to do this when you were in Egypt. You used to do these kind of things. Don't do this anymore, okay? I've called you out of Egypt. Now let's get Egypt out of you. All right, you see that? Uh, go to chapter 18, uh, let's see from verse 2 partway through God speaking says I am the Lord your God you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you do not follow their practices you see this why is he giving all this and you start to see it over and over and over again I've set you apart I've called you out of Egypt don't go back don't go back be different now. Be free. Be alive. Live differently. We, we could go on. Um, chapter 18, verse 24 says, uh, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am to, going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and laws. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things, for all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled and if you defile the land it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you don't do these things like other people do live differently live differently one more chapter 20 uh, verse 22 says keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I am going to bring you uh, to live may not vomit you out do you see this why is God giving them all of these things because he wants them to inherit the land, because he wants them to know goodness, because he wants them to live, because he doesn't want them to fall into the practices of the things that they used to do or the things that the people do where they're going. He set them apart to live a different way. I've called you out of Egypt. Now I'm calling Egypt out of you. Be different. Be different. Live differently. Don't go back. Um, you, you probably know this. There are countless books and websites where you can read about all this stuff. If you want to quit a habit, you cannot just stop doing it. Anyone ever tried? Anyone ever tried to, to stop doing something? Uh, yeah, a few of you. Great. Not just me. Amazing. Lots of you. Awesome. It's so hard, isn't it? You're like, right, I'm not going to do this. And then you just think about what you're not going to do. And you end up doing it. Yeah? 
So I've done that. If you really want to quit something, if you want to make a change, you need to replace it with something new, with a new habit, with a new thing, with something different that will shape you in a new way. Yeah? You can't just stop. You see, they came out of Egypt, but now they had to get the practices of Egypt out of them. How do we do this? God says, here's a new way to live. Here's a new way to be human. Here's a new way to find joy and life and freedom, the way that I call you to live. I, I, can, I can tell you about this. I've talked before up here uh, about God setting me free from pornography addiction, right? Do you know what we, we're not so good at talking about? It is the lasting effects of that. We champion the, I'm set free from Egypt, yeah? I'm out. God set me free. For, he set me free from drugs. He set me free from pornography. He set me free from gambling. He set me free from, yes, I'm free. I'm out of Egypt. But how often is Egypt still in us? Yeah, we, we forget the 40 years that followed that, where God had to work Egypt out of them. And I can tell you that God set me free from a pornography addiction. But man, the lasting impacts of that upon my mind and my heart, that did not go away overnight. That did not go away overnight. And there was a long journey, a long journey. And some of that I'm still journeying. There are, there are things, ways that it shapes the way you see the world, the way you think. And you'll find that for all kinds of addictions, all kinds of things that we get caught up in, all kinds of life that we get trapped in. God wants to set you free from it. And if you keep letting your feelings be king, you keep, you keep letting Egypt be king. You see, we have to choose to live his way even when it doesn't line up with what we feel or what we think. Because his way will bring us into a new freedom, into a new life, into a new way of living. Don't go back. All of this stuff is about that. So God called them out of Egypt, right? That's, that's number one why. Why all these laws and rules? Number two, he didn't just call them out of Egypt and Egypt out of them. He called them into something. He called them into his presence. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. Um, they're about to do all these weird things. And they're like, why are we doing all these weird things? And then Moses says this. He says, this is why we're doing it. For today, the Lord will appear to you. Today you'll be in his presence. This is why we're doing it. Down to, to verse 6. This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Why are we doing all these weird things? Because God wants you to know him. Because God wants you to live in all that he has for you. Uh, keep going down to, to verse 23. Uh, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, the presence of God. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and they fell down. Why did they shout for joy? Because, hey, we were in slavery and now we're set free. But then even when we were free, we were still bound by our sin and we still kept doing these things and we got it wrong. And God kept calling us and we never thought it was possible to know the freedom that he wanted us to have and to know his presence. But we were told it was. And so we did what the Lord commanded. And wow, he actually showed up. Shout for joy because the Lord is here and we are in his presence and we are free. And oh, we thought we would never know him. We thought we would never know life and hope and freedom and peace. But it is possible because his presence is among us. Wow. God didn't just call them out of Egypt and call Egypt out of them. He called them in to his presence. He called them into his presence. And finally... He called them into his blessing. Turn to chapter 26. 
This is one of the most incredible bits of Leviticus. And people never make it this far because they drop out. <laughs> and I don't blame them, all right? I know, I know I'm weird for loving Leviticus. Right? Oi, you. <laughs> but people don't make it this far because they drop out. And this is amazing. Chapter 26, verse 3. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crop and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety in the land. I will grant peace in the land and you will lie down and no one will make you afraid. I will remove wild beasts from the land and the sword will not pass through your country. You will pursue your enemies and they will fall by the sword before you five of you will chase a hundred and a hundred of you will chase ten thousand and your enemies will fall by the sword before you I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers and I will keep my covenant with you you will still be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new I will put my dwelling place among you and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt so that you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of, the, of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. Wow. Wow. You want to walk with your head held high? free of sin and shame? Then let's do what the Lord commands. Let's do what the Lord commands. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and life in all of its fullness. What is Leviticus? It's John chapter 10, verse 10. Life in all of its fullness. God calls people out of slavery and into life, into his presence. And how do we get to experience that? Firstly, like last week, we respond to the call, right? We respond to the call. When he says, come, we run with everything we've got. We sing, we shout, we bow down, we lie down, we, we read, we pray, we, we, we bring all of the stuff that we are carrying and we bring it before him and we get to him in any and every way that we can because it pleases his heart when we come, right? And then once we've done that, we have a decision to make. You've waved your palm branch, but will you leave it down before him or will you pick it back up? Will you let him be king and will you choose to live his way even when it doesn't line up with what you're thinking or feeling, even when it doesn't line up with the cultural narrative around you, even when it doesn't line up with the things that you have believed all your life? This is the moment where you have to choose. Am I leaving my life, my heart, my mind, my job, my, my relationships, my finances? Am I leaving my palm branch laid before Jesus and declaring that he is my king? Or am I going to take it back up and take it with me when I walk out the door? Will you choose to trust him and do as the Lord commands? Why? Because when we actually let him be king, we will, we will discover the life and the hope and the freedom and the joy and the peace and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the healing of his kingdom. That's why. And that's what Leviticus is all about.